our goal with all our athletes is when they come in, naturally, everybody wants to throw hard. I mean, you got to have some velocity to be successful, but we have to do it in the right order, in the right manner. So we don't start off with saying, okay, let's, hey, let's just build velocity. We start off by with that stat test. We evaluate you and say, where's the weak link? Where's the functional, where's the functional strength issue? Where's the biomechanical efficient? We address all those things first in that order before it becomes, okay, now let's go try and build your speed threshold of your arm and your body. Hey, this is More Than Velocity. I'm Bart Pear. Here today, we've got uh, quite a treat for everyone. Um, as, as normal, Jordan Osegar and Ryan Croton are with us, but today we've got Tom House and Dean Daxakis uh, with uh, NPA, with Mustard App, with uh, uh, a lot of different things um, around baseball. As you know, Tom House is kind of the godfather of, you know, pitching biomechanics. Um, that doesn't imply that he's old school by any means, though. They, they definitely are up to date on the latest research and, and, and moving forward with, uh, with how they develop pitchers. So we want to, we want to talk about a lot of different things, uh, here today. Um, Jordan has kind of been with, uh, the MPA before and knows, knows Tom house since almost the beginning. So I'm going to let Jordan kind of set everything up here, Jordan. Yeah. So I was real lucky, uh, for whatever reason, Tom was, you know, real appreciative of me coming to a camp for some reason. I probably just bothered him too much. Uh, my parents just dropped me off in a sense for free daycare when I was like seven years old. And Tom said, come on, you can pal around with me. Um, and ever since then, you know, I kind of started calling him once I heard his stories, the Forrest Gump of baseball, because it seems like he's been there for everything uh, from, you know, I think you were there for, you know, destroy disco night, if I'm right, you know. Pretty, yeah, pretty close. I've seen, I've seen virtually everything you're seeing on the archives and at ESPN. I was there in person. He caught Hank Aaron's, you know, record-breaking home run ball. Uh, man, it's it's a it's a pretty cool cool career, not just from a coaching standpoint, but a playing standpoint. Just the experiences. Um, so yeah, I don't know if you want to throw anything else in on that, Tom. Well, let me throw on top of it. Uh, what you represent, Jordan, is what um, my philosophy has been with baseball since I've become a coach, and that's accessing good information and instruction to the kids as young as they can possibly be so that they can have fun, the power of play, they can compete and be healthy. And if they want to stay in the game, they can do it a longer time. And what you just said, I, I think you're right. It was, uh, what, it was up at what, what high school in Utah? Oh man, I th it might've been like Bingham High School or something yeah, like that. But you were, you were like seven years old, right? Alta High School, it was Alta High School. Cause it's where okay. Bob Kais good. pulled a hammy on the track. Good, good job, yeah, running back. <laughs> yeah. So. And, and how old are you now, Jordan? Uh, 33. Okay, so do the math. Seven years old. And if, I know all my memories of you and your family were fun. We had up, ups and downs, but it was not only playing the game, but getting smart about how to be in the game. And now here we are 26 years later, still trying to help kids. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're one of four or five testimonials that if you get a kid early, it has passion for the game and you can show him how to, you know, be smart and stay healthy while he's competing. It's a long-term commitment. So uh, when you and I are talking, I, I think um, all the lies that we're telling are kind of like true lies. We can embellish a little bit. I, my wife says, I don't lie. I just remember big. So 
that's what you and I are going to do during this, this whole <laughs> podcast. Okay. Awesome. I love that. So let's talk a little bit about the mustard app. Um, you know, I've, I'm seeing a lot about it, uh, you know, AI video, you know, app for, for developing pictures. Um, I don't know if, if you or Dean wants to kind of introduce that and then let's talk about how you see that fitting in with, with the arm I'll care. I'll start it off and then I'll let Tom finish it up. But basically we've taken the Forrest Gump of baseball, everything that's in his head for pitching and we've put it in basically get in a handheld device, be able to get your mechanics analyzed uh, with your own device. And so the 50 plus years of research, the 50 plus years of working with elite hall of famers, the 50 plus years of just gathering data is all put together in this one little thing that every player, parent, coach can take and get the best biomechanical analysis available in, in the industry. So, Tommy, what else do you want to add to that? Well, we just wanted to, I, I think the words that the, the CEO of Mustard, um, Rocky Collis, uses that we wanted to democratize the information that the elite athletes get and access it to a mom and dad of a 12-year-old son or daughter filming in their backyard. And the app it's, it has been out now, I think, to the general public for about a week, uh, and it's just going nuclear. The beta testing over the last year and a half has just been awesome. And um, I, I know it's, uh, it's hard to believe, but the first go-around with the app, it's, it's free. We were sitting around as a decision-making group trying to figure out, you know, if we have this great tool, um, why don't we get it out there and see how it's received? And then we'll figure out how to pay for it. So what you've, what you've got when you go online and Dean, you, you'll help me out on how to, how to do it. But if you wanted to check it out, it will literally, it's like having me sitting across from you at the desk or in a dugout out on a field or on a mound with you when you're throwing. And I think it's the best thing I've ever done. It's taken a, a lot of people, a lot of effort, and everybody has the same goal. And, and the reason we're all, all on right now, health and performance is, is huge for your company too, Bart. Yep. And so it's, it's a consensus among the people that we believe are in it for the same reason. And that's the health and performance of the athletes that are out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, we've all got kids of different ages. I mean, Dean, you've got a, a professional, a kid who's playing professionally um, and, you know, all the way down to one and two year olds with Jordan. And we all want our kids to whatever their potential is to just to achieve that and have fun doing it. So, um, you know, I definitely think the app, the mustard app is, is, is going to help with that, especially with the competitive athletes who really understand where they want to go. Um, and, and we, uh, you know, we support that like, like you in, information, um, should be democratized information, you know, picture. We talk about players on our podcast a lot, taking ownership of, of where they're going and what they're doing to develop. And, uh, and the more information and the guidance you have, you know, the better to do that for sure. You know, how you, go, go ahead. ahead. Yeah. I was going to say just really, I mean, the great thing about the mustard and NPA that this is, these are compliment complimentary items, including into what you guys do. You know, we look at health and performance as monitoring workloads, um, functional strength, and then mechanical efficiencies. And so it all fits in together. We use the app for mechanical efficiency. Um, we have programs like ours and yourselves that handles the functional strength. 
And then as a whole in a group in the industry, we need a better job of monitoring workloads. And, and again, kind of with measuring devices like y'all's and others, we can do that as a group. So, I mean, in my opinion, I, I really like what I'm hearing because I'm a biomechanist and um, it's always been so technical, the biomechanical model, you know, and the quantifications can be overwhelming, I think. And, and now, you know, seeing these uh, markerless motion capture applications that can work with a single camera, I think it's going to start to develop a common language across yeah. all people. You know, biomechanics, you model people differently all the time. You get different measurements. That's a big problem. So I feel when we, we can start to talk about something common and it's very useful and easy to use, I think there's going to be great impact knowing when something changes. Yeah, you know, and that's the great thing about specifically the EMTA and the mustard. You know, problem identification is only half the problem, okay? A lot of people collect data and say, okay, this is what looks what's wrong. How many people are building a trainable on top of it? So with MPA and mustard, not only say, okay, here's the problem, but hey, here's the trainable, the actual drills and the trainable that goes along with it. So not only do we not have data now, but how do we take that data and say, Where's the fix? Data doesn't fix the problem, but adding a trainable to it does. So, yeah. And what it boils down to, Ryan, is I think we're the first group that has generated research data from the field to the biomechanists, to the medical community. We've been capturing, I, I got my first motion analysis system in 1986, and we have 903 uh, major league pictures in the computer at 1,000 frames a second. So, We've got a consensus model that um, my vocabulary, when we first started it, you couldn't use a coach's vocabulary to, to describe kinematic sequencing or understand, you know, uh, the, how, how important it is to have balance in your accelerators and decelerators and what kin kinematic sequencing and kinesthetic awareness and proprioception were all words that old school baseball just looked at you like you had spinach on your teeth when you talked about them. But with the mustard app and with what we've got going on with the NPA, not only have, have we democratized the information, but to use your words, we've come up with a vocabulary that everybody can understand now. And I have to, you know, I, I'm an old goat and I look back, I, I have to say that right now when I look out, there's, um, your age group, the, the 35 to 45 year old um, baseball person that's out there right now is the smartest they've ever been. So your generation is gonna carry it, carry the mail. We, uh, I, I kind of broke the ice and what's gonna happen now with uh, what, I, what I honestly believe is gonna happen, it's just gonna take off. And everybody, instead of arguing I'm going to do a little sidebar real quick. Baseball for a hundred years, you make yourself look good by telling everybody how bad they are. Well, we've got, we don't argue with anybody. And you're, Jordan, you're laughing. We used to define baseball as a game of failure coached by negative people in a misinformation environment. And we've all been involved with pro teams and pro teams are like a silo that you, nothing permeates gets into the silo and all the teachers are within the organization. You have to be that way or you don't play. So by opening up the information, you know, access, 
and adding instruction to it with a vocabulary that makes sense to everybody. Uh, that's a pretty exciting time to be involved in baseball right now. Yeah, I think one thing that's really cool to point out is, you know, I've been able to see kind of the evolution of the, the, the NPA, uh, Tom House Sports, and kind of everything that's come along with that. And, you know, originally when things started going on, it was uh, Tom House is crazy. He's always changing his ideas. He's always mixing things up. But that's because of where that research was, is you're always willing to kind of look at what you were doing into pivot. And then off of that, you saw pro ball start going, oh, hey, this is actually good when you were talking about those silos is they said, we need to actually start pivoting. And I, I tell Ryan, there's this pendulum in professional baseball that it never really settles in the middle of old school versus research. Sometimes it'll briefly hit that. Now, I know the Rangers had a really good run uh, when Nolan was part of that, that organization where they were kind of in the middle of old school and research where it was, and they had this great run. And then the pendulum swung the other way. And it just, it never really seems to land in the middle but one of the great things that I've noticed with you, and again, being able to see that kind of evolution of how you've gone, is you never let that pendulum take too extreme of a view. If it comes down to vernacular of, well, I say, you know, hip and shoulder separation. Well, I want it called disassociation. Like, it doesn't matter to me as long as you get it. And right. that's been one of the cool things about it is you've never let that pendulum land too far one way or the other. You've always been willing to pivot and get the pendulum going where it needs to, but you always keep it in that healthy medium. And People have hated you for it. People have loved you for it. But at the end of the day, everyone's starting to come around. And I got guys that I know coaching in, I think, 25 of the 30 organizations that they're saying, hey, this, this Tom House language is starting to bleed into everything. You know, so it's, it's still coming back and it's going to swing one way. And if it, if it does what it always does, it's going to swing back the other. But it's starting to be more widely accepted because people are realizing this, this guy was right. Well, and re remember, um, I, I was right only because I took what, were, what we call old school and kind of brought it into contemporary vocabulary. Uh, can I take a little one-minute sidebar real quick? Absolutely. Everybody remembers who Warren Spahn is, right? The, mm -hmm. the winningest sure. left-hander. My first spring training, Warren Spahn came up about my third day and said, sit down, lefty, I'm going to give you the keys to the big league kingdom. And I'm going, oh, my God. You know, he's tobacco all over him. He smells like a goat. Been sweating and throwing BP since 7 o'clock in the morning in the cages. And he says, how's he listen up? You throw uh, them guys that stand off the plate, throw them in. This, them guys that stand away. Let me, let me start over. Guys that stand tall in the box, like the ball down. Guys that squat, like the ball up. Don't throw a long arm man away or a short arm man in. If he's cheating up in the box, he's looking straight for off speed. If he's moving back in the box, he's looking hard. Now go get him, kid. And <laughs> I remember walking away going, what in the hell was he talking about? Well, you put his words to the current analytics and all the analytics and those propeller heads upstairs that are positioning defensive you know, alignments to fit with where a pitch is and where a hitter's going to hit it. That's all I was talking about. So I, I call it collaboration. And Dean, you can help me out here. Long gone are the days that I would confront somebody. Yeah. Even if I knew, even if I knew they were not quite right or completely wrong, I would say, Hey, that, you know what, that's, that's really solid. 
um, let's have a look at what I'm doing, see if we can walk away, both of us better for the experience. I think that's been my maturation process. And then the fact that the ability to basically measure and quantify, they're out there. You can, you can measure anything now. And what, the, what people are seeing, if you can measure and quantify, then and come up with a deliverable that will actually help around what you measured and quantified, everybody's better for the experience. And the athlete turns out being healthier and performing better. It's a win-win across the board. So I honestly believe that where we are with technology and you younger generation of smart guys, are going to make baseball so much more efficient than it's ever been in the history of the game. It's still best game ever. I think the one thing that I appreciate, appreciate about your work, Tom, is that you are able to take, you know, these very complex movements in the pitching delivery and create shapes. Um, in the track world, there's another guy I kind of liken to you named Dan Fass. He's just kind of this guy who's been, in the track world for years he's seen so many things he's fixed so many athletes but he has been able to create these things called kinograms where you're actually looking at the shapes of the body and the positions that they're in and it's really interesting because now you can take something that's so technical and that you could apply such deep quantitative information and give this the resources to people that they can see this on video and I like the fact that now you have an app that's going to blend both, you know, the things that you've seen in, in the terminology. And uh, I think that's, you know, that that's the part that I'm really excited for is that, um, you know, people will be able to see these things. And there's been so many, if you go on social media, there's been a lot of people in the field who have created some adaptations of what you have done um, to be able to visualize these things. And, and I think that helps the, the, you know, the new school, the heavy research component in the old school, they use their eyes, yeah you know, and that's, that, that, that kind of thing starts to bring us in the middle, I think. That's very perceptive. And what I think we finally got across to all levels of baseball, that your eyes will lie to you when you're watching an athlete perform like when he's throwing or swinging. The human eye can only see about 40, 40 frames a second, the elite eyes but all the stuff that matters with the throw takes place at one 250th to one 400th of a second and what we thought we saw um, before high-speed motion capture was like the glove for assistance it always looks like the glove is being pulled away from home plate when the athlete is throwing the ball we used to call it the captain's wheel or squish them whatever the words were well, it turns out that what we, what we think we're seeing is not happening. You take all the elite pitchers, no matter what your eyes say, at release point, their glove is firm in the front of their body to translate energy into the baseball. But that's not what our eyes were telling us. So in the good old days, we taught with, based on what we saw. And then with motion capture at high, high definition and high speeds, we realized that our eyes were lying to us. And then we had to come up with a way to teach and demonstrate, like you just said, what would be, because I can remember the first time we were looking at just playing stick figures where, where there wasn't a skeleton or a, a Michelin man, but just stick figures. You couldn't tell when you were looking at it, whether the guy was right-handed or left-handed, 
whether it was going forward or backwards, whether his arm was coming out of the back of his head, you just couldn't see it. Well, now we've, uh, we've trained our eyes to see things better. And the, the figures we use to help people visualize what's going on, a skeleton or whatever the icon might be, are much more efficient than they were in 1986. Real quick, I want to touch on something that I think is going to be going to be relevant to a couple of our previous things we've, we've discussed on, you know, the arm care IQs Ryan's releasing. And I think both Dean and Tom, Tom are going to be able to give a really good context to this, but you know, we, me and Ryan have been talking a lot about teaching before foot strike, because that's going to be your most controllable aspects of the delivery. You're going to be able to give way better context to that than really anyone on this call or a majority of the baseball world when it comes down to it. And right now, again, I'm not, I'm not going after people teaching arm path or arm position. There's a time and a place for it, but I would say 85% of your coaching is going to happen before foot strike. And if you don't mind going into a little more depth on that of, of kind of those controllables when it comes to coaching, because your, your drill work that you prescribe is obviously very controllable where there's a lot of things going on in baseball, good, bad, or indifferent. The research is still going to come out on it. That is happening after foot strike for that teaching. And you hear some success stories, but you also hear a lot of, you know, failure stories in that. But if you want to go into, you know, coaching before foot strike. Do you yeah. want to start? <clears throat> Do you want to start it off? Yeah. Too? So, I mean, it, it becomes really evident when you actually look at a 3D motion capture uh, scaled out and graphed out. And you'll see that all the lines are kind of all together and traveling along. And then at one moment, all those start stair-stepping into your efficient uh, changes. And that is timing the foot strike. Okay. So when you have a inconsistent timing of foot strike, what does that do? It affects the rest of the sequence. So many of your problems that are after foot strike are because of something going wrong before that, the timing into foot strike. And it could be something as simple as posture and balance that's affecting the way they're taking off. It could be um, just not going as fast as they should. There'd be several things. And so the most important uh, biomechanical variable is that timing to foot strike. But there's several things before that that lead into that we address as well as, as national pitching and mustard as well. But so when we're when we look and talk to coaches and or and kind of share experience about how to teach, many of them are addressing issues that are going wrong after foot strike that could be fixed if they just fixed the timing way before that. So it's important that, like, for instance, we have nine key biomechanical variables that we that we we address and follow from posture and balance before you start movement until release. And if we look at that and and we, we try to convey to coaches that you cannot address key biomechanical variable number seven or eight if you haven't fixed number one first, which is posture and balance. Get that right. And then to, when they execute that and get it done, perfect, we move on to number two. If that's not right, then we fix that. We can't jump ahead to six, seven, and eight, which is hip shoulder separation and swivel stabilized, all that until we fix that timing and up into that, that moment right there. So I think that's what gets skipped over a lot in, in most pitching instruction. And just, just to add a little bit to that, and Jordan, thanks for setting us up on that. If if you GFF, if you go friggin' fast into foot strike, if you get into foot strike with weight transfer, any, any words you want to use, but if you can transfer your weight in one second or less, all right, then the timing of your delivery pretty much will dictate that your arms, your torso, your legs, torso, and arms 
will be sequenced properly. If you can keep your eyes level, that's your natural arm slot. If you can keep your front side firm and drag your back foot, you will get the energy from weight transfer to energy translation and out into the baseball. So the simplest teach, and that's what we search for, is GFF, eyes level, firm front side, drag your back foot. It's the same thing for a quarterback. It's the same thing for tennis. What has happened over the course of the years, remember the good old days when we, everybody said, slow down, stop at the top, um, make sure you get your balance position first. Um, just GFF, go as fast as you freaking can, keep your eyes level, firm your front side up and drag your back foot. And that's the simple teach. What's really interesting is that we will have a lot of different variety of people come to us. And what's really amazing is the ones that have had the least amount of, um, or have had none to little interference or change in the way they pitch, always show up more biomechanically correct. So the human body inevitably wants to almost work efficiently until it's taught differently or incorrectly. So it's even more important, I think, that, um, that, that the issue of the right information is, is why it's, that is so important is because you're actually better off getting no information than getting bad information when it comes to efficient mechanics. So. And then jump on this. Uh, I think maybe it was you, Dean, or Jordan, I can't remember, but it's not just mechanics. It's the functional strength to support those mechanics. And then it's also age-specific. Mm -hmm. um, Bart, I think you ended up or earlier said, you know, teaching your two-year-old, teaching your 12-year-old, and teaching a 32-year-old. The information is going to be similar, but the teachers, the words are going to be a little bit different to communicate. Yeah. So depending on your window of trainability, um, your mechanics are going to be affected by your strength. So we're a little bit different. Our four legs of the human performance table are mechanics, functional strength, nutrition and sleep for recovery, and mental, emotional to handle stress and anxiety of competition. But... I think you really have to pay attention to how strong a kid is, how functionally strong he is for him to have the right mechanics. And throwing on flat ground has different issues than throwing off of a mound. So I know we're probably making it harder than it should be, but I think that's something that your company has done really well. Yep. And that's, that's given athletes, no matter what their age, a vehicle to make sure that they're functionally strong to handle the workloads that they're taking out of their arm. Would, um, I you, think it, would you agree, Jordan, having been involved with both? Now, I didn't think we were going to go this into the weeds on some stuff. So I'm going to give some examples because you started talking about yeah. timing, you know, stopping at the top. And, you know, we just had Ben Brewster on who, you know, he's, he's a great coach also. And, you know, we had a player that we brought up that actually went to tread and we had a specific coach. Again, I won't, I'm not going to throw any names out there, but he wanted this player to do a double balance point. I still can't visualize actually what a double balance point looks like. He ended up going to tread, tread sped him up. The guy gains his velo back, pitch shapes get better. And he's, I think he's pitching AAA right now for a specific organization that he got traded to. Um, but then there's this, they, they, they want the double balance point, but they want you going fast to hold the runner at first. So he won't steal second. And there's this, you know, this pulling back and forth to where the messaging is not clear. So then even when you're, you're talking those four legs of the, of the performance table, for me, strength, 
and mechanics are the two most easily controlled. You can always get stronger and you can always address your mechanics. Um, and having really good functional strength, relative strength, you know, everything is going to give you a better chance to keep your arm healthy. But even with great relative strength, everything, the foundation set, there's something called cascading that if you don't have that mechanical efficiency and you see guys start changing the way someone strides or they change the way they're doing it because they think that's going to be right. You might keep the shoulder and elbow healthy, but you start seeing a ton of low back injuries. You start seeing a ton of oblique injuries and it just cascades because yeah, your shoulder and your, and your elbow, they're strong enough to handle this, but what isn't, and that's going to break on the chain. And if you want to go into that a little bit, cause you know, I think that's going to really, really drive a point home that, you know, our, our, our thing here is it's more than just velocity. You have to balance out the athlete. And I've told, you know, Ryan before is like, yeah, if you have so much strength on this table, but the, the biomechanics are bad, or if you have so much, really your biomechanics are perfect, but your strength sucks, that table still not going to hold anything on it. It's going to wobble. You got to have each one of those things equally put together. And then you factor into there, your nutrition, your sleep, your mental, emotional, and the way you actually go between the lines. But if you don't mind going a little more on cascading, I know I rambled there because you got me excited uh, before but, you. Yeah. Before you answer on cascading, I just want to, I want to just clear. I want to define kind of what we define as, or say what functional strength is versus absolute or relative strength. And then you can go into cascading, Tom, a perfect example of, of functional versus absolute. We had a young man in a recent clinic that was six, five, 240 pounds. He's a monster, huge. Okay. Lots of muscle mass. This guy should be strong, correct? But we put him in a position with one of our drills where you have to hold a band firm uh, going away from the wall and hold your front side firm. And his arm just started doing this. It just started shaking. And I said, let me show you something. And I took the band and, and this is just because uh, I do it all the time, but, and I went out far and held the band. I just stood there and I, thought, I said, why can't you hold this like this? And the point was, is that this was a large human. <laughs> Very, very, he had all the muscle he needed, but he was functionally weak. He didn't have the strength cross specific to the action of how he was going to compete. So, um, just so y'all, I want to make sure I understand there's a big difference between strength and functional strength. So, yeah, the ability to bench press it doesn't have anything to do with throwing hard. So, you're only as strong as your weakest link when the energy from ground force production is coming up through the system. If you have an imbalance between your quads and your hamstrings, you're not going to translate as much energy. If you, if you can't create torque between your hips and shoulders, if you have oblique issues, you're not going to be able to get enough energy into your shoulder and arm to throw hard like you should. If your bicep and triceps are out of balance, you're going to end up with elbow issues because you have to accelerate and decelerate in a time frame. So, to, to make it as simple as I can right now, with movement, you're only as efficient as your worst movement. With strength, you're only as strong as your weakest link. You've got to put the two of those, match them together with workloads, how much you take out of your arm when you throw a pitch, and how do you put it back in so you can recover and be ready for your next outing. And that, again, I hope that's a good segue into what you guys do, Jordan, because I know you've come up with protocols that are very similar to what we do, where you can actually quantify how much you put back into your arm. Mm -hmm. So 
we we talked in big circles about something that's really simple. One of the questions you had was, how does the MPA monitor players to improve throwing arm health? And we have a, a testing process that, and this is why what y'all do is so intriguing to us because it really is complimentary. And about quarterly, we, we test every new athlete that comes in for live training. And we're basically screening for those functional strength weak links by the entire body. It could be lower body XL, D cell, upper body XL, D cell balance. Um, it could be speed thresholds as well, the arm, shoulder. We're looking at the entire body for those weak links. And then we'll do that quarterly to kind of see where they're at. So what the arm care product does, it kind of fits right in there with monitoring that functional strength wheels product work. So, And it's, it's not the kind of strength training that tears you down when you lift. And I, I believe in lifting heavy weights. I, I believe in, you know, being on machines and lifting heavy weights there also. But what, what we call joint integrity, where you're using bands, the elastic resistance, light dumbbells, um, things that will build endurance and function, not absolute strength, are, are just practical necessities if you want to stay healthy. And I've heard the word cross-specificity. It, do, it doesn't do you any good to strength train something that you don't do or use when you're pitching or hitting in a baseball uniform. So that's one of the things that I think our two companies, and I know that we've identified, we have really good models. Uh, everybody looks different doing the same thing. And uh, what Dean was hitting at is, is our stat test. We screen, we test, and we assess for functional strength and functional movement, and then come up with protocols to, to train. And if it's a neurological uh, issue, it's for skill. Pardon me, if it's, if it's neurological, it's for movement. If it's muscular, it's for strength. And you can't have skill until nerves can talk to muscle specific to what you're asking out of it when you're pitching. I hope that made sense. Yeah. And just to give a real world example, you know, I, I worked with you for a long time is once we kind of got to that functional fitness level, we would go down to world gym and we would lift weights, you know, whether it was machines, whether it was free weights, we'd get in there and we'd, we'd move weight, you know, it wasn't, you know, grab the five pound dumbbells and do some curls. Once we were good, once we were cleared from that, you know, functional strength, we were balanced off front side, backside. We then built that, you know, that absolute strength around that. And it was, it was a fun time. I'll be honest. <laughs> yeah. And it was even more fun. I'm going to try to clean this up as best I can. <laughs> the reason the kids like to go to that gym at 11, 1130 every day, there were strip clubs all around. And that's when the gals would come in and work out. We had guys walking into mirrors, dropping <laughs> plates. It was very interesting to see all these teenage kids. In, and and oh, lift and man. ride along with the gals. It was one of the most fun times we ever had, huh, Jordan? <laughs> no comment. Jordan never missed a day, huh? <laughs> that is high compliance. <laughs> I'll tell you what, nobody was ever late for those weight training sessions. That's what I can tell. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons why we're so excited about the Arm Care app is, you know, tracking workloads is, definitely so important, but we now have the ability to see, well, how strong are you 
right now, you know, based yeah. on your workload, you should be this recovered, but we're seeing this and we can adjust training um, on the fly. And that, that really creates a lot of opportunities that we're, that we're excited about that. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, we've, we've had so many conversations with, with you guys in the last few months about incorporating it. Um, we are, you know, the title of our podcast is more than velocity, but everybody does want to know, you know, what do you, how do you increase velocity? Do you do weighted balls? What, what are you doing? Let's, um, let's talk about what the MPA does and, and their, how they use weighted balls and, and enhance velocity. Do you want to start it, Dan? Yeah. I mean, so yeah, weighted balls obviously are part of the MPA program because, you know, we were the first ones to do the research on that many decades ago and have evolved over time. And basically the program that you see today was developed based around shoulder health and the velocity came on accident just from making people healthier. And then it became a velocity program. And so it's been morphed by many other companies since then, but it started off by trying to alleviate GERD, glutamate humor internal rotational deficit. Yep. And through a study done, I think Jordan, you might've been involved in that as well, but um, we were able to alleviate GERD by a series of holding on to weighted balls more than throwing them. We still throw them, but we like to build strength before speed, obviously for health reasons. And so this was done, I don't know, many years ago, but so it has morphed since then, but that's still the program we use today. It's, it's, it's a shoulder health and arm care program that results in higher velocities. So the point of me saying that is that our goal with all our athletes is when they come in naturally, everybody wants to throw hard. I mean, you got to have some velocity to be successful, but we have to do it in the right order, in the right manner. So we don't start off with saying, okay, let's, Hey, let's just build velocity. We start off by with that stat test. We evaluate you and say, where's the weak link? Where's the functional, where's the functional strength issue? Where's the biomechanical efficient? We address all those things first in that order before it becomes, okay, now let's go try and build your speed threshold of your arm and your body. Because it's, it's just building a building on a bad foundation if we take it in any other order. So we feel like we have a lot of responsibility um, to our athletes in the way we approach it. And that's the way we approach it. So we take care of all the weak links, the mechanical efficiencies. And what's really amazing is that suddenly now we have guys that are throwing harder without ever saying, okay, I've got to throw this weighted ball as hard as I can into a wall or into a net. Now that's a, something we can utilize. We have other Velo products as well, um, but we're going to do it in the right way in the right order. So yes, we do use them, but um, it is um, just one of the bullets in our gun and we have lots of steps before that. So. I think it's important real quick to point out the difference of your guys's program for training versus testing for yes. weighted balls. And you guys have some really good fail safes in there built in with the holds. And maybe at some point, Ryan, after they kind of explain this, you can go into some of the results we've seen from the holds protocol, but you know, Tom or Dean, if you don't mind kind of going through, you guys have a training protocol and a testing protocol, which for me, kind of sets this apart from a lot of the other programs, if you don't mind going on that. No, I'm so what glad you, you mentioned do, that. Go ahead, Tom. What you do, and then if I screw this up, you can help me out, Dean. What you do is you test to figure out where the issues are, then you train uh, to to fix the issue, and then you worry about velocity, and you have to, you have to do it in a stepwise regression fashion where we start off on throwing on the knees, where the ground force when you throw on your knees is your body weight. And you're going to go, you're going to hang on to for X and throw for two. If it's heavier than five ounces, it's for strength. If it's lighter than five ounces, it's for speed. And around that, 
three holds, two throws from the knees, maxing out. If you can get through that and have adapted to body weight and, and, and energy translation, then you can do it a step and throw or, um, yeah, step and throw or uh, rocker, rocker leaper. Is that what we call that? Yep. The rocker leaper. And then three holds, two throws, the two pound, one pound, six, five, four, two ounce. Uh, and then you finish up with running guns or whatever you want to call step it. Step behinds. Step behinds. Yep. And real quick, and, if you don't mind differentiating your running gun versus what you see on you know Twitter and everything else. Well, let me where- say this. A running gun for us is a testing method. Right. Okay. Not a training method. Okay. Because it's usually done when someone does a running gun where they're just going as fast as they can and throwing completely out of control, hair on fire. It's probably the most biomechanical inefficient way that they'll ever throw a baseball. So obviously it's more stressful if it's not efficient. So we test with, with that procedure, but it, our training method is a step behind when we're trying to create more ground force production with the, with the weighted ball program so that we can control the body in a mechanical efficient manner. So that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Ryan released an arm care IQ talking about running guns and he had guys charging from, you know, 80 yards out. And that's why I want to make sure you guys do a step behind. So when you say run yeah. and gun, we obviously have an arm care IQ. That's like, Hey, don't do these unless you're really strong. And I want to make sure we differentiate that your guys is, is different than what Ryan was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. You when you can actually test a kid and he is functionally strong and mechanically sound, then you can, on a, you know, a limited throw basis, you can have him go mock three with his hair on fire. And that will let you know what the high-end capacity this kid had. We've had, and Jordan, I, I know you can remember, we've had athletes throw a two-ounce 118 miles an hour. We know the human arm can go that fast. But can you adapt the human arm to throw that fast, you know, 95 to 100 times in a given week? Um, and you, you, you can't do that unless you've taught from the beginning how the arm can adapt with functional strength and mechanical efficiency. Yeah. I, I mean, I just wanted to touch a little bit on, you know, how to integrate arm care with this process is that we need to have programming that evaluates strength improvement with weighted balls. And a lot of the research <clears throat> that Jordan and I have seen is that you really only get strength benefits with the holds. When you when you're using you know weighted balls, you're releasing the ball, you you're losing what's called muscle irradiation. So that's where you're you know, you're creating grip. You don't want to let go of the ball. You're trying to throw the ball so it's moving at higher velocity. But the activation of your forearm flexors and your hand muscles they increase the recruitment of your shoulder. And one of the things we saw was that the heavy holds increased internal rotation strength. So you would think, okay, you know, you would think a lighter ball would be better for internal rotation strength because you're accelerating your arm forward. But we found the opposite, that the heavy ball actually increased internal rotation strength, but the light ball, doing light ball holds, increased the decelerators, the posterior cuff significantly. And, you know, one of the things that we dealt with is that, you know, things that were seen on social media and other coaches' viewpoints is say, well, this doesn't look like throwing and it's going to confuse the throwing motion. And, you know, Jordan and I had to have conversations about, you know, this is an essential training tool. We want to talk about improving muscular balance. That's what's a very important feature of the Arm Care app 
is that we want to we want to get the athlete as close to one to one as we can between both sides of their arm. And when we utilize the weighted balls, we were able to see improvement within a week. That can't be accomplished in anything that they do in a uh, arm care driven uh, process that's medically driven with wrist weights or light dumbbells. Right. right. It, it, it was just, it, it was night and day. And it was incredible because, you know, we had to take some athletes out of competition. We used very expensive dynamometry that was technically uh, difficult to use, but with, with our measures that we had is that if we brought an athlete out of competition for 10 days and put them on similar programming, we were able to get them back to where they needed to be strength wise in a very short period of time. And when we had this process of observation and the right implementation that was time sensitive, we lowered our injury list days by 40% in pitchers for the entire minor leagues. 65% at the major league level. And we had no surgeries for two years. The only one that we had was a surgery that came back uh, to us from COVID because the athlete wasn't prepared and he was one of the hardest throwers on the team. And so, you know, and to be I, fair, I, he already had issues prior to, we knew yeah. there was issues coming into right. that. Yeah. And yeah. it's really Ryan, you're dead on. It's very hard for people to understand that you can train to throw a baseball without throwing a baseball. Uh, I'm going to die. Without releasing a, a baseball. <laughs> yeah. As everybody remember the Andrew Luck, when he was coming, when we rehabbed his shoulder, he didn't throw a football for four months. All he did was work with weighted implements, swinging, you know, tennis rackets, hitting tennis balls. And he didn't touch a football until a week before camp. And the first, the first, you know, the first pass he had in camp was a 40 yard dime and all the sports writers, everybody was all concerned that he hadn't touched a football all summer long. And so what Ryan said, you, you do not have to throw a baseball. You can train with other implements and the idea of hanging on will build strength faster than anything that has to do with throwing, especially when you're going down the hill. Yeah. And I think one of the, I'm so glad y'all brought that up because one of the biggest issues I think in, in parents, just in layman, you know, parents with young kids trying to figure out, you know, how do I keep my kids arm healthy? How do I make it stronger? You know, the old false conventional wisdom is go throw long toss, you know? And, but we know that um, as we have release, it's not actually a strengthening program. So I'm so glad you brought that up about the holes being the part that's strengthening. So, yeah, yeah, real real quick on that too is it's everyone always says, well, I've never seen someone hold a ball on the baseball field, and my response, well, I've also never seen anyone do a pull up on a baseball field, yeah. but that's <laughs> widely accepted. It's going to help you. Yeah. So it's all context driven. Is you know you can't you can't be so dialed in on it. Hat if it's not a hundred percent the throw, and the for me the holds mimic the what that player's arm is going to be doing probably for one of the best arm care solutions out there. Like Ryan said, that's probably the best results we've had on the private side of this. Yeah. Yeah. And jo Jordan, you remember when we were up at SC, we got the idea for holds came from watching tennis mm -hmm. serve. These guys would serve, you know, 700 serves a week and never have a shoulder issue. Well, it's because they were accelerating and decelerating um, a, a weight without letting anything go. And then the research that came from Flysig, I believe, 
it takes more strength to throw hard on flat ground than it does to throw hard down a mound. But the deceleration on flat ground is easier on the arm than the deceleration going down the hill. So you have to, when you're training on flat ground, you have to be aware that the forces are a little bit different on a shoulder and an elbow when you're going down the hill in deceleration. So we've put all that into the protocol, as have you guys, to where the functional strength testing and, and training, they match up specifically to the throwing motion. And just so we don't make the whole a bunch of people unhappy, we do believe in throwing the ball <laughs> and releasing it in <laughs> longer distances if you want to. That's fine, but you got to do all the other work to make sure you're equaling out the strength with what's coming out work what's coming out you got to put back in ahead of time and then also um you know it uh, uh it we want to make sure we do it in the most mechanical efficient manner possible when we do throw long distances so we're all for it we just want to do it the right way <laughs> yeah long tosses as far as you can throw perfect yeah yep i mean yeah, my... and then you know i know everyone's going to talk about tennis elbow you know well they they serve a lot but they get tennis elbow and i'm going to try to tee this one up for you i don't remember the guy's name I want to say it was like Mags, but he came to you as a tennis player who's nationally ranked with tennis elbow, and you actually started implementing overweight and underweight tennis rackets. You're getting small rackets, big rackets, and it cleared up his tennis elbow. Um, so I, you know, just to, to kind of put guys' minds at ease was, you know, there, there's obviously adaptation. And like I said, you're always willing to pivot and figure out how to kind of find a solution. Okay, this is your fault, Jordan, so I'm not going to take the hit on that. We also found out that his mechanics in his serve were a little inefficient, and his tennis elbow was caused more with a vibration of contact with the ball than the actual swing of the tennis racket. So remember, when we first started off today's podcast, it's functional strength and efficient mechanics. They have to go together. Awesome. Ryan, I know you had something to say. I interrupted you. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the element of all of this is that we have to also battle fatigue, you know, and um, that, that's, that's kind of the crux around the, the new age weighted ball programs. And you're seeing 11 year olds that are taking these, you know, heavy runs into the throw and they're not, they're not, they're not technically sound probably even on the baseball field throwing to first base or hitting a catcher's glove and there's no emphasis on throwing to a target. Where what I worry about is in these programs, fatigue isn't monitored. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the thing I do like about the holds is that on of all the weighted ball implement throwing, the loads are actually lower on the elbow and shoulder. We measure um, it, yes. Yeah, which is, which is really interesting. The actual biomechanical loading is less. And so I, I'm hoping that the people that are listening to this, they, they seriously consider this type of training approach because if they're on a weighted ball program, that's not advancing strength. It's like having a Ferrari without tires. There, there's, there's going to be issues that are going to happen down the stream and they may not get hurt during the weighted ball programming process, but they may, when they go back into competition and now they have a regulation size baseball and they don't have the strength to support their velocity. And, and one of the things that I, I just want to keep bringing to light is that we're creating a metric called the strength velocity ratio. And so research has shown that an increase in a mile per hour within an individual will increase a, uh, a one unit uh, increase in, in elbow loading. So you got to think if you're increasing velocity, you're increasing loading, 
that's just naturally what's going to happen in the body because there's exactly. there's higher accelerations. Yeah, you better arm, have an increase in strength. Speed. Yeah, arm speed without functional arm strength is a recipe for disaster. Yeah, yeah. we've also to take it uh, a little bit further on what you just said, Ryan. If you're pre-adolescent, it doesn't do you anything any good to throw something heavier or hold on to something heavier than a five-ounce ball until until hormones show up till testosterone shows up it's better to work regular weight of implement and light than it is trying to go heavy mm -hmm. so you know there's all kinds of little subplots that you have it's age specific it's window of trainability and because this is a smart group i'm going to throw it out here if you've got a 13 year old that has grown four inches and gained 20 pounds he's basically um, not 13, he's 12. For every one inch of growth in a month, it pushes you back two months as far as your neurological and your muscle. For every five pounds gained or lost, it messes you up two months in the adaptation of your body weight. So all these things factor in. And then fatigue management, um, not, not necessarily muscle failure. The first thing to go when an athlete is basically fatigued will be his command. Doesn't lose velocity. He loses command of the strike zone. So pitch totals and velocity are a, a one way to measure, but it's, that's not for me. Number one is to watch what's happening to command. And there are a, a multitude of things you can do to manage fatigue. But basically, you prepare to compete, to recover, and then repeat. And there's micro and macro cycles. You can do it inning to inning in a game. You can do it, you know, a number of innings per week. The pitch totals that are out there that are recommended by ASMI are a good start. But you have to also look at the physiognomy of your athlete, his age, and how he's put together. So it sounds like it's really complex. It's not. What I like about elastic resistance, and anybody can jump on this, it, I think it's the safest way to build endurance into a shoulder and an elbow that there is out there. Light, dumb, light dumbbells are nice, but they have sticking points. Elastic resistance is uniform resistance through the range of motion. Um, you can create any angle, any body position using a cord. Uh, or elastic resistance specific to the way they throw, I think it's the safest way to build arm endurance that's out there. I agree with you completely. Um, I'm about to write a blog and do one of my arm care IQs about the differences between weighted implements. But when you use wrist weights or dumbbells, when you get past the sticking point, momentum can take over. So the activation of your muscles, they're not recruited the same. Um, especially if you're moving them fast upward, yeah. the, the weight moving just kind of takes the arm up in a sense. But when you use elastics, they don't have the same gravitational aspect where you, you, you have more tension as you're getting towards end ranges. You don't have less tension. And uh, I know we just talked about the holds with muscle radiation, but our particular bands have handles. And, and one of the things that we want to have them uh, our athletes do is to at least grip those things at 50% of their maximum, because if they're gripping, if they're gripping the handles 
you know, with some type of force, they're going to give, get this accelerated activation of their shoulder. And so each day that they're not gripping or they're not using handled bands, they're just leaving strength improvement on the table. We're in firm and believe, firmly believe the same thing, uh, that you need to be holding or gripping on to something with your bands um, to, for the same reasons you said, including joint stabilization. It's just safer. Um, so, yeah, we love that point. Here's and I don't, little, I don't know how we're doing a, on time. Oh, go ahead. Here's a little FYI. Um, hanging sliders, hanging breaking balls are a floppy wrist issue. And the only way to firm your wrist up is to squeeze your fingers and your palm. So when you have handles or like our little baby footballs, when you squeeze those, it builds strength in your hand and your forearm and that stabilizes your wrist. So another, another reason to have it in, in your hand and recruiting finger and hand strength. And it goes, it radiates all the way up into the shoulder capsule. Yeah. Jordan, I want to touch on one more thing that Ryan said about as velocity goes up, you know, the increments of stress and, our stat test actually measures that. Um, when we do a test on an athlete, we tell them for the current velocity they're throwing, if they throw X amount of pitches, this many foot pounds is coming out of your arm on a weekly basis. And then we go back to our workouts and say, if you do these workouts, it puts those foot pounds back in. So it's a so they can balance it out, just like a bank account. Keep taking money out, don't put money in, you're going to go bankrupt. Same thing with the arm. So it's really important for parents and all in, in players to know that as you are increasing velocity, the stress level is unavoidably going to increase. You have to be able to put the workload back in to equal up to that. So we can measure that. Yeah. And that's, you know, you, you guys have heard me talk about it when I've, when I've been on with your guys' group before kind of going over the arm care system, how it integrates is I still use the book fit to pitch. And, you know, I've, talked to Tom maybe three weeks ago and just said, yeah, you know, I was using fit to pitch because it gives you that equation. And then when you start factoring in, we do the pretest, we find out what that strength is. And in the equation for fit to pitch, it factors in strength loss. That's right. They do what we do a post test and I have every single guy I work with do a pretest and a post test. And now I know if it was 8% strength, 5% strength, 12% strength. And it just makes that equation more accurate to where their velocity their current strength and their post strength all factor in. So now it's just like Tom, you were talking about, you know, mustard is going to give you the biomechanical feedback. Arm care can give you the pre and post throw exam information to dial in that foot pounds equation. And then whichever system you choose to use for that, you can dial in your development with the appropriate coach, whoever it is you see fit, but it's pretty awesome. You can tell I'm getting excited about it because it's all stuff that, you know, since I've known Tom for however long, 26 years it's been, you know, we've, we've, we've done our best to quantify this, but now you can actually put those tangible yeah. numbers to it. And, you know, we started, man, it might've been what, 2003, you mess, we were messing with dynamometry with the, I think it was the Rangers Yeah, and we were finding the- an 18% strength loss. You're pretty yeah. much going on the IL, like you're not <laughs> going to beat that. And now you can take that information and make sure you're wave loading and not hitting those strength losses. And there's, there's no excuse now to not know about yourself. Look how smart you've gotten. In the last <laughs> I just, I this. just pretend it's cause I have glasses on. I have glasses on today. You know? Go proud, you make, you make your you. mama proud there. Man. <laughs> Who would have thought that Alta high school, you know, 20 years ago, 
that you would be a graduate talking about this on a blog. Go, go. Hey, and then also you forced me to get a master's degree. So well, if, I, I, tell if you, I didn't, what did I tell you guys? You said I'm like too short. I'm not left-handed. So I better put some investment into education. Yeah. And if you're a short right-hander, you better have a lot of letters next to your name. <laughs> That's why all, Ryan all has good. a thousand letters next to his name. I couldn't even step on a mound. I had to get a ton of letters. but real quick i just i think it's so important i know we're we're strapped on time but if you don't mind going into eccentric work because me and ryan are really big on eccentric work uh bart's son is a rower so get in there on it it's it's awesome let me tell you eccentric and isometric are the way to go all right whether it's rehab prehab recover whatever you're talking about so um, I'll let Ryan talk about his view on eccentric, but when I get someone that is hurt or coming off of a surgery and they've been released from medical rehab, I, I'm not a doctor, I'm a PhD. And when, they, when a doctor has released some, someone from medical rehab, I start off with position-specific isometrics where we'll just hold the position for time because you can't hurt yourself, you can build strength, and because there's no movement, you don't stress the joints. So when I'm firmly convinced that the muscle is bounced off, forward, backward, right to left, top to bottom, isometrically, then eccentric conditioning, eccentric training, for me, it speeds up the strength gain process exponentially, maybe three to four times quicker. So that's what our research shows. And there's a number of activities, both in the weight room and on the field that can be considered eccentric. Like we'll just do the chords, like what we do with our chords. We'll have a pitcher go through a rocker lever or a delivery with elastic resistance on his front side, pulling him toward the, the fence. Then we'll flip him around and have elastic resistance going away from the fence. And they both build strength, but the eccentric builds it quicker. Does that make sense, what I just said? The cool thing is you can take any, just about any weight room routine or band work, dumbbell, whatever you're doing, find a way to make both the concentric and eccentric. The eccentric gets doesn't get utilized enough. We end up, you know, just going one way. And so in a pull-up, we can do a better job of making that eccentric and just a dumbbell, I mean, press or floor press, anything like that can be made better eccentric if you just take the time to do it. And it's such a benefit. Now I'll put you on the T here again. If you can mix in the word perturbate, you're going to have Ryan so excited right now. You can't, his screen's hey, no. off obviously, but. <laughs> I'll, I'll clean this it. up because everybody's all nervous when I'm on social media. Perturbation is just what we're calling shake and bake. Like if you did, if you got against a chain link fence, standing, leaning into it, got yourself in a push-up position, and just shook the fence—not big, but just small and shake—or if you're in a push-up position on the ground, or if if you have um, resistance up top with, with bands, if you just shake and bake, you get the same effective strength building with none of the risk of movement issues. So yeah, perturbate um, and 
think how that translates to a, a teenage boy and what's going on in his head. But shake and bake is the way to go. It's safe. You can build, you can build all kinds of strength with no risk because there's no huge movement involved. Did I clean that up as best I could, guys? Well, Jordan knew that was coming when he teed you up. He had to have known. <laughs> well, I, I didn't think it would go down that road, but you know, this is something you know, me and Ryan, we were trying to get a ton of eccentric work programmed in. And the big complaint, well, now the athlete's going to be stiff and sore. Well, let's do perturbation work. Well, they're going to be stiff and sore. And our, our old general manager, Billy Epler, fantastic way that he would say, do you want to pay now or do you want to pay later? Yeah. So isometric, Ryan, I know you're going to want to go on a big, big tangent here about, you know, potentiating that. And that's why our arm care training is a lot. There's the isometric put in there for the test protocol is we want those guys to potentiate. We want them getting isometric work. We have a lot of eccentrics built into our programming and we have some perturbation work built in with our plyo balls. So Ryan, it's, this is one of the things I'm excited about with the NPA is it, is it fits a lot of what our system is on the training side specifically. And if and you want to go already, on that, yeah, we already have the research for the pile ball perturbation stuff. So if I was there, if I was in person, I gave every one of you a hug. There needs to be, no, there needs to be more of this put out there because we're not arguing with anybody. We're given all the traditional thinkers and all the new thinkers, a vehicle that everybody's a win-win with. Nobody can argue this when you look at it, what we just talked about. There's nobody on either side of the equation that can argue with it. It makes it makes total sense what, what uh, you're saying, Tom, because, you know, the isometrics and the delivery, there are instances where the muscles at both sides of the joint have to stabilize the shoulder. Um, it needs to be central in the joint. And that's one way to do it. We call that co-contraction. And that's what isometrics do. But all the injuries in baseball primarily are eccentric. So people that might not know the eccentric term, it's a lengthening contraction. And these lengthening contractions are happening at very high speeds in the delivery. And, and, and this tension is what causes strains and sprains. And if we don't train the muscle groups and the tendons and the ligaments to be able to handle those things, um, they're not going to be able, even under slow speed. So the eccentrics that we do in training, they, they, they're not mimic the same as, as throwing. If we can't even do that at slow speeds, how do we handle it at fast speeds? And the thing that's always kind of puzzled me as you watch an injured pitcher go through rehabilitation and what do they do? They start with isometrics and then they build out to eccentrics and then they get to plyometrics. Now, the eccentric part is the huge bridge, but then once they're healthy, especially the older guys, you know, this, this fear of being sore, the eccentrics go throughout the window. The isometrics, because they take time, are thrown away. And primarily, they're focused on concentrics and plyometrics. And I don't think that helps them long term. Um, it, it does not. You're, you're dead on. So this is how I cut right to the chase, Ryan. The, the rehab they do after a Tommy John is what they should do in prehab so that they don't have to have a Tommy John. Mm-hmm. You look, at, you look at, at Tommy John rehab and it's almost our everyday work. It's what we do every day with our athletes before they ever, you know, on a daily basis. I'm like, why are we not conditioning and, and building functional strength like we would rehab? We should do that rehab and that's basically what tom's referring to so mm-hmm. there, there needs to be 
an emphasis of effort. So sometimes when I look at, at pitchers doing uh, arm care, I look at their faces. And if I didn't see them grit at all, I didn't see kind of that kind. It, it just kind of was a warm up in some, some athletes. And, you know, there's nothing more strenuous to the body than throwing. No sport. There's, there's just no joint that moves at the same speed as your arm. And I keep thinking to myself, the training is so incongruent to the competing that we need to figure out how to create a bridge for robustness of the, of the pitcher. I mean, that, that thing from the time that they're a kid, from the time a kid first starts throwing, there has to be some kind of training program to go along with it. You know, and, and if we don't teach their habits to our younger generations of pitchers, you know, it's, it's like, it's, it's all acute, you know, now they're a professional yeah. athlete. They've had no, no structure, no process during being a high school player. You know, if they, if they don't go to college and then all of a sudden we're developing all these habits and a lot of it's too little, too late. They haven't developed yeah. all the, 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 the strength around um, their joints and they, they have bad adaptations to their joints as kids. If they don't have the strength to withstand throwing, you know, we, we assume that, you know, throwing faster is more risky, but even in younger kids relative to their bodies, some of these kids throw really fast. You know, yeah. a lot of these bigger kids, they throw really hard for their body size. And we talked about growth and, you know, growth plates are open. And if they, you think about the bones growing, it's like two pieces of land going further apart. Well, what happens yeah. to ligaments, ligaments and tendons that connect to those things? And if we don't have strength for those things, you know, we, we are going to see problems later on in their life. You know, people wonder this kid's healthy all along high school. He comes to pro ball and he blows out within the first month. And it's because he just did not have a process. And all of this was put on him, you know, the training and the competing, and he didn't have the basis or foundation. And then we have, you know, injuries. So, you know, you, we can tell what, what, we, what we need to do is just buy a buy a country and then train train the kids all right so if we if we pulled all the five of us if we pulled all our money right now i might be able to buy a part of tijuana that's about the best i can do <laughs> but you're right but this these kind of forums these it's the information is there it's getting it out to the general public i think that mustard is is a beginning and I think our relationship, um, when, when you combine, we're going to access more kids. The magic words that I heard today are adaptation. And it's got to be cross-specific to the skill and age-specific to the nerves and muscles. And we're all doing it. We are the only ones out there that I know of that are doing it this efficiently. And I don't mean to be breaking my hand or my arm patting myself on the back, but I don't mind patting you guys on the back. We just have to keep pushing the envelope to get the information and the instruction out there. That would be my hope. So we got to do, maybe we should do one of these on a regular basis. Uh, you know, I would good. love that. This has been fantastic. I think, um, you know, there's a few other questions I know we'd love to ask you. Um, and I think doing another podcast or regularly, regularly makes sense. We, we'd love to do it. Um, we love where you, the direction you guys are heading in. And, and, you know, I think you guys feel the same about where we're headed and, and the end of the day, whether you're, you know, the baseball player is 10 years old or, you know, is trying to get a few more years on their 
professional career, um, you know, we, we want to help them. And, and so that's what we're trying to do here. Uh, I'm going to put this in the show notes. I'm going to put links to MPA. I'm going to put links to the mustard app. Please check it out. Um, if you haven't subscribed to our podcast yet, um, I definitely encourage you to go ahead and do that. If you've got any other questions, put them in, put them in on YouTube or wherever else, and we'll get to them uh, either directly or on another podcast. Uh, Tom, Dean, this has been awesome. I appreciate it. And uh, until next time, take care. Have a great time. Thank you. God bless. Have a good one.